Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Actor and actor, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, uh, James Holland, today. Um, Al's seat, I'm afraid, is is empty this afternoon, but that doesn't matter because we've got an amazing guest, someone who's a, a great friend of the podcast, uh, Professor Mike Nyberg, all the way from the US. Um, Mike, it's great to see you on this, our special December 41, 80th anniversary week of podcasts. Great to be here. I've been looking forward to this for weeks, ever since we first talked about it. So it's it's great to be with you. Uh, well, you're too kind, and you're you're fresh from the amazing conference that they have every year at um, the National World War II Museum in in New Orleans. And before we get stuck into 1941, tell me how was it? 
It was phenomenal. Uh, the museum always does everything first rate. Uh, they um, they had about 350 or so paid attendees. We uh, they were very careful with COVID. Everybody had to show vaccination cards to to come into the conference, and that let everybody be social and re-engage and do all the things that we so took for granted before COVID took them away from us. So it was just a delight to be there, and always a delight to be in New Orleans, which, uh, as you know, is just a beautiful, beautiful place to to come for a conference. Well, it, it, it absolutely is. It's an amazing city uh, and the museum is absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? And I mean, it, well, what's nice about it is over the years, you know, one kind of sort of makes um, some, some pretty good friends. Um, and it's nice to be able to kind of chew the cut, isn't it? And just sort of share thoughts and ideas and all sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah I miss exactly. it this year, but I think, um, you know, fingers crossed uh, uh, next year, maybe. But um, yeah, I hope so. Uh, you know, we, we, Alex Ritchie and Rob Satino and all of these wonderful folks who have been a, a part of this conference for years. And uh, some folks I had not yet met, Ian Johnson, who has a book I, out on the Soviet-German partnership in the interwar years. Uh, really uh, just a phenomenal conference all around. And uh, uh, again, as you said, New Orleans is just such a such a treat and such a delight. And now I have a daughter who's a student at Tulane University down there. So I have an no additional way. reason to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's that's great. very good. That's very yeah. good. Well, anyway, back to matters in hand. So December 1941, I mean, it does seem amazing, doesn't it, that in that that kind of, you know, December is traditionally not the, uh, is not the campaigning season, certainly in the kind of Northern Hemisphere. And yet, December 1941, you, you couldn't literally pack more global events into it if you tried. Uh, and, yeah. and obviously it kicks off with, you know, the, the, the Soviet counterattack outside Moscow. Uh, and, and it's fascinating, isn't it, that, that as a sort of the dawn is, is rising uh, or the sun is setting in Moscow, it's kind of sort of, um, or maybe it's the other way around. You, you, you've got events happening the other side of the world in Pearl Harbor and, and, and that huge sort of earthquake event, I suppose, really. And you know this as a scholar, sometimes when you're researching, you, you can you can see that people are not aware of the magnitude of the events happening around them. December 1941, people are perfectly aware of the magnitude of the events around them. And there's a moment in the in the Vichy book that I just had published where um, I think it's Robert Murphy and, and, and Vagand are sitting down in North Africa and Vagand, they're, they're both perfectly clear. What this means is American policy will no longer be ambiguous and Germany is no longer guaranteed to win the war in the East. Everything that had been assumed a couple of days before, you can no longer assume now, and it's going to change everything. And they're perfectly aware that they've just lived through a watershed moment. So, so Mike, for those who aren't aware, just let, let's just talk us through who, who Weygand and Robert Murphy are, because they're two really, really interesting characters, aren't they? Yeah, Robert, uh, Maxime Vagand is the uh, commander of French military forces in North Africa. He's uh, by this point has fallen out of favor with the folks in Vichy, which is in part why he's in North Africa. And Robert Murphy is the senior American diplomatic representative in North Africa. And they had been doing this very strange kind of dance together as the Americans are trying to see if they can flip Vagand over to the allied side. And Vagand is trying to see how much money and resources he can get out of the Americans before he gets off that fence. So they're doing yeah. this very strange dance. And in fact, right before Pearl Harbor, Murphy tried to go and see Vagand and Vagand just says, well, I'm, I'm going to be out of town. And then the day after Vagand calls and says, you know, Hey, I'm here. I never left town after all. We need to talk. So it's this very <laughs> weird kind of, you know, dance that they're doing and, and Pearl Harbor and and the as you said the Soviet counteroffensive outside Moscow simply changed the entire tenor of their conversation together. 
but 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 tell me about the kind of the news of Pearl Harbor and how that reaches because obviously you've got all the, you know Pearl Harbor is in the middle of the Pacific you've got all these different time zones in North America anyway you know at, at what point is is FDR the, the the American president what time is he kind of learning of this and 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 what that and hearing the the news and the, and the extent of the attack I suppose. I believe I'm right in saying this. It's about one in the afternoon. Is are you are you further up on this than I am? I think it's no, about. Oh, I don't one think. I afternoon. think that's about right. Yeah, uh, it's got to it, be it early comes, afternoon. It can't be earlier than that, can it? Right, right. At least not Washington D.C. time. Um, you know, a lot of Americans learn about it when they're listening to f- American football games on a Sunday, as you do in America uh, on a Sunday in in the fall and winter, uh, and the, the the football broadcasts are interrupted. And the museum and New Orleans we were speaking of just opened up a temporary exhibit with some wonderful audio of people's recollections of of they were listening to a symphony or they were listening to a, a ball game or they whatever they were doing, and all of a sudden there's this interruption with news and that that sort of first sense of shock. And then as it comes through that, yes, this has actually happened uh, and the response of what that's going to mean. So uh, that was the that was a very interesting exhibit they had using the audio and video of all of this kind of all brought together. And do you think there is there a sense that the United States just don't see it coming? I mean, I know there's all these rumors about they had, you know, they did know and they were sort of pretending they didn't. And and clearly that's absolute nonsense. But but um, like, like most conspiracy theories. But do you do you think. The United States government had obviously been toying with Japan for quite not toying that's the wrong phrase that they'd, they'd been playing a, um, a political game with with the with Japan for quite a long time there'd been kind of you know uh, um, embargoes on things hadn't there and um, sanctions is what we would call them today you know on oil and all, all sorts of stuff so, so Japan had been more bellicose. America was, the United States is very aware of that. But but how much do they does, does FDR and his and his team think, you know, actually we can keep the Japanese on 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 a leash or we can keep them at bay? Put it that way. I think there's certainly a gr- awareness of growing tension. I think what's going on is most people think if the Japanese are going to do anything, the obvious target is the Philippines. It's not all the way across to Pearl Harbor. That it's it's that failure of imagination, that failure to believe that they could actually pull off something as daring as that. So I think to the extent that, that Americans were worried, they thought it would be something closer in the Western Pacific than that audacious a move as to strike Pearl Harbor. So it's that it's that, you know, great phrase. There's not so much surprise as it is shock. Um, that is to say right. that, that the, the, the idea that Japan would do something to get itself out of the corner it had been boxed into is not quite the surprise as what they actually pulled off. Um, right. That's, I think, what 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 is really shocking. And in this way, it seems to me, I remember talking to my aunt, who was a, a World War II generation uh, shortly after 9-11. And I remember her saying to me, it was the same thing. It's not that we didn't think that ter- extremist terrorism coming out of the Middle East could affect us. Nobody thought they would dare to do something like this yeah it is it's it, it's it's exactly that isn't it it's that that sense of of this is so audacious that no one's seen it coming i mean it's just it's it's incredible and, what, what, and do you think i mean do you think fdr immediately is thinking this means are in the war oh absolutely it, you know 100%. one of the things hundred percent. One of the things Japan had gambled on is that this would so rattle American morale that the United States would have to come back to Japan with a better offer, take away some of those sanctions back off of American policy in, in China. And of course, it does the exact opposite. It, it brings the United States fully into the war in a way that it's hard to imagine another event doing, uh, bringing the American people together. 
ending any talk of isolationism, ending any talk of pacifism, um, really the, the, the tense moments from the fall of France until Pearl Harbor, when you can see this thing coming close to you, now it's here. And again, it just it clarifies everything in an instant. There's no longer anything to debate. The only issue really to talk about is how are we going to do it? It's not if we're going to do it. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, I, it always strikes me as, as extraordinary that, that you have this moment in May, June 1940 where, where, where Britain is waking up to the realisation that it's going to have to create an army because the army uh, in the alliance with France has now gone. Uh, and that was France's role. You know, Britain was going to do naval, predominantly naval power and burgeoning air power, and, and France was going to do predominantly um, land power with a little bit of help. Now suddenly Britain's going to have to, you know, it's looking like it's doing all the land power with help from the kind of, you know, the dominions. But, but, and suddenly they've got to kind of start from scratch. Well, it's the same for the United States because, you know, Roosevelt is suddenly thinking, yikes, you know, I didn't see this coming. And, you know, the Atlantic is not the great barrier that it once was considered to be. And America needs to, needs to rearm and it needs to kind of do a vault fast on the isolationism of, of the, of the 1920s and 30s. And it takes time, you know. It, it is remarkable the speed with which which it happens. But but if you if I remember Bill Nudson saying, you know, the the great um, um, car man who's one of the dollar a year men um, who, who's recruited um, by Roosevelt, and he says to FDR, look, it's going to take eighteen months before we can do anything meaningful because you've got to have six months to kind of do start training people and get the make the machine tools. Then you got another six months to do the switchover from from civilian production to industrial, you know, to war production, and then you've got to have another six months before you're actually kind of sort of getting any kind of meaningful numbers off the production line. And isn't it amazing that that eighteen months later on, it's December nineteen forty one. You know, so there is this appearance that America's just emerged into the war, kind of fully formed, and yet it's not the case at all. You know, part of this comes, I mean, the money comes from the fall of France, which is it's after that event in spring 40 that the United States starts committing massive amounts of money yes. uh, and the creation of a theoretical two million man army. The weird thing, of course, that happens is you now have this debate in December 41 about whether all that money that you've spent, all that production you've started, all those soldiers, all those airplanes you've created, are they going to go to Europe or are they going to go to Asia? Because the, right. the war you actually thought you were going to fight first, ABC one and Europe first and all those kinds of things. Now you have a serious problem. It's not Germany that America is screaming to defeat. It's Japan. So it, it is a it is an unexpected crisis that they have to start working their way through. It's worth going backwards, isn't it? Because the first discussions, I, if I seem to remember rightly, about should America just say hypothetically America comes into the war? And I think this is kind of sort of um, when is this when Admiral, Admiral Gormley comes over to Britain and like about September 1940, something like that. So this is the first tentative conversations. And they say, look, you know, should there be a scenario where America comes into the war? You know, will it be first and foremost in support of getting rid of Nazism? And everyone goes, yes, 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 absolutely. Then there's kind of ABC One, isn't there? In, in, when's that signed off in kind of early part of 1941? Mm-hmm. Right. So again, it's agreed that should America at some point come into the war, then, you know, it will be a Germany first policy. And then that is reaffirmed at the Atlantic meeting in August. But there's a big difference between talking about it in August 1941 and then suddenly being attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, isn't it? Well, it's a completely different context. So part of the reason the United States is so was so anxious to think about Europe first 
it, it, it avoids the problem of having to think about the imperial issues of the Pacific for at least a little while. And you believe until December 1941, it's easy to believe that the tyranny of distance in the Pacific will at least give you the option of choice and time. And what Pearl right. Harbor has shown you is that it, it doesn't do that. So you really do have this dilemma, especially the leaders of the U.S. Navy really don't care about the Atlantic theater at all. They want to avenge no. Pearl Harbor. They want to go after the, the, the threat that's largest. So <clears throat> I always find this interesting when the crisis that you get is not the crisis you had planned for how adaptable, flexible, improvisable are the war plans that you've developed. And in this case, maybe it's good. The United States doesn't really have a war plan worthy of the name. They have kind of general concepts in the rainbow plans, but they have nothing worthy of the name. So they can go back to scratch. And I think this is where Arcadia is so important to make sure that the United States uh, for the British perspective, make sure the United States did not just say, all right, everything's going to the Pacific now. Well, yeah. But let's just, before we get, we get into the kind of um, into the detail of, of Arcadia and Arcadia is the conference that follows um, the first wartime uh, um, conference between that the America the United States and British chiefs of staff and that's later on in December but but I'm really fascinated by this period between the 7th of December and the 11th of December of course 11th of December is when Hitler declares war out of the blue as far as his own commanders are concerned and his own general staff is concerned it's, it, he does it no one else um, that four days uh, uh, what what are the um, okay? First of all, what are the American chiefs of staff thinking? And and can you just explain who the American chiefs of staff are and and what the structure is by which decisions in in now that the Americans find themselves in wartime? What is the decision process? What's the split between political and military? And how does that and how does the military and political kind of work together? Well, of course, in the American system, the um, commander in chief of the armed forces is the president of the United States. But the Constitution doesn't really lay out what that means. So the at least in the 20th century and, and at least since Abraham Lincoln, what that has meant is that the president sets the kind of general strategy, but tries not to get involved in the operational and tactical. That's at least been the theory. It hasn't always worked out that way. Then it's subdivided into civilian secretaries of war and Navy. This is before the United States created a Department of Defense. And they really are two separate reporting chains to the president of the United States. There's no intermediary in there in the kind of modern office of the secretary of defense. So they're two separate bureaucracies running separate and competing um, uh, wartime systems, really. And then the, the secretaries have underneath them senior uniformed advisors, which are called the chief of staff of the army, in this case, George Marshall, uh, and the chief of naval operations on the Navy side, which is Ernest King, who... King could care less about what's happening to Britain, could care less about what's happening in the Atlantic Ocean. His focus is decidedly and determinedly out into the Pacific Ocean. Marshall, I think, uh, sees himself and proves to be that kind of grand strategist. Uh, later in the war, they'll take Admiral Leahy when he leaves his post as ambassador to Vichy France, he'll become what, what morphs into the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he'll become the the kind of intermediary between the senior ranking soldiers and the president of the United States. So the system as the United States had it in, in, in the two world wars was, I think most people would argue so insufficient that immediately after world war two, they created this brand new bureaucratic structure called the office of the secretary of defense. Right. And where does Hap Arnold slip into this? 
So Hap Arnold's in a very strange position. So he's an air commander, which technically puts him underneath the army, but they create him as a kind of separate chief of staff. So that's one reason why Leahy has to come back, because if you have the army and the Navy, that's one thing. But if you have the army, the Navy and the Air Force, that's three separate reports up to the president of the United States. Uh, And this is done before the United States Air Force is formally created. So it's all kind of in flux. And I think that's probably the way Roosevelt liked it. Um, That way, he's kind of the, 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 the moderator. And Leahy was someone he trusted absolutely, fully 100 percent, the military brain of the president, as he was sometimes known. Um, So Leahy is is the the perfect guy to be in that position, figure out how the Army, Navy and Air Force were thinking and then present one voice to the president of the United States. So it's a strange system. It's an informal system. It's one that is uh, changing and developing as the war goes on. And as I said, after the war, one of the first major things they do is a complete overhaul of the intelligence and, and, and defense bureaucracies of the United States. So what so what is happening? between the 7th and the 11th of December. You know, the British haven't got here. Uh, so, so, yeah, just talk us through that. And, and obviously King is immediately going, right, come on, we've got to go and kick some butt in the Pacific and go, go and get the Japanese. And, you know, what, what is Marshall saying? How, you know, what, what's what's um, uh, Stimson saying? You know, what's the kind of thought process in those crucial immediate days afterwards? You know, obviously, how do we respond? But But what does it mean? But what had been happening before December 7th was that the, the, as soon as France fell, the awareness of, of most American senior military leaders, virtually all of them, that without France to provide that time and protection that you talked about, and with the Royal Navy so focused on the home defense of the, of the home islands, what you really had was a situation where the United States simply didn't have enough defense resources to cover a fraction of what it was that they thought. So they give up the idea of hemispheric defense. They go to something they call a quadrosphere defense, which will go out to the Brazilian bulge. They talk about, well, what, what do we really think we need to defend? What, what is, what is the American core interest here? How far out does our security perimeter go? And that's the debate that they're having between June 40 and December 41. Are the Philippines a part of that? Is, is Iceland a part of that? Um, you know, where 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 is that American security perimeter? And they're trying to figure out how how many defense resources they can put against that perimeter. Pearl Harbor. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I mean, of course, you've got the, you, the U.S. Atlantic fleet kind of joining in from kind of end of August, beginning of September, you know, and playing an active part in the Battle of Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, you know, famously, infamously, the Reuben James, a, a USN destroyer gets sunk by Eric Top. Maybe the U.S. defense perimeter should go all the way to Ireland. Um, should it go to Greenland? Should it go to Iceland? You know, where right. where should American responsibility stop? Um, and that's a debate that the two navies are trying to have. As more stuff comes online, the United States can get a little bit more aggressive. But still that, you know, is it is it is it Atlantic? Is it Pacific? How much do you need to put in Latin America and in the Southern Hemisphere? Right. Um, there, there's just not enough stuff to go around. So right. these debates start to happen about strategic priorities. Um, and, and the debate that Arcadia will also bring up, how responsible should the United States be for guaranteeing its allies, in this case, Britain and the Soviet Union, which is a discussion at Arcadia, how much stuff off those assembly lines should be headed towards Russia? So, But, but, but before we get to Arcadia, before we get to Arcadia in those crucial first days, is it well, I suppose what I'm driving at, Mike, is is there a school of thought that just says, OK, we're in the war right now. We're just in the Pacific War or. Are we immediately, even though we haven't declared war on Germany and Germany hasn't declared war on us, are we now at war with Germany? Are we effectively thinking about any minute now we're going to be at war with Germany? 
so I suppose does King hold the the, the aces on this in the first few days? Does it look like it's going to be a Pacific first policy should it come to it? I mean, or or or, or is the Germany first policy that was first mooted is that still kind of does that still have the greatest sway in the discussions? Because, I mean, everything changes on the 11th of December when Hitler declares war on America. But I'm interested in that crucial moment between Pearl Harbor and Hitler declaring war on the United States. Well, that's the million-dollar question. So it's obvious in those four days that the priority of the American people, the priority of the Navy, the priority of everything is going to be Japan. So the question is, how much do you want to pull out of the Atlantic and send to the Pacific? How much risk are you willing to undertake in the Atlantic? Either that Germany will declare war on you and begin offensive operations against you, perhaps in concert with the Vichy French fleet, which is a possibility. Uh, and how much do you want to take the risk that if you focus on the Pacific and the Germans focus on the British and get a success against Great Britain, that puts you in a much worse position in the Atlantic, too. That the emotion, the, 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 the feeling of the American people, the anger, the passions of the people, as Clausewitz would say, uh, all of that is pushing towards going to the Pacific. Marshall, I think some of the folks in the War Plans Division, like Ridgeway, Eisenhower, are saying, let's be careful. We, 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 can't, we, can, we can hedge a risk in the Atlantic, but we can't risk too much. We don't know yet where this is going. Um, and of course, once you ally with Great Britain in the Pacific War, it means you're allied with them in the Atlantic War as well. So uh, it's, it's a difficult, difficult couple of days. Um, King is certainly the strongest American voice saying, let's accept risk in the Atlantic and let's go full force in the Pacific. Uh, but there are other voices to be heard as well. Well, on that note of American conundrum, uh, let's just take a quick break. Well, welcome back to everyone. I'm uh, it's me, James Holland, talking to Mike Nyberg, and we are discussing the geopolitical situation following Pearl Harbor and uh, the those incredible events of December 1941. And, and I think we left it really, Mike, on the, on the kind of eve of the 11th of December. And then on that day, the 11th of December, Hitler declares war on the United States. And on one level, that just seems like a bonkers decision, doesn't it? Because... He hasn't told his chiefs of staff, you know, he hasn't told the the, uh, the OKW, the, um, the the German general staff, he hasn't told his senior commanders, he's just done it off, you know, from the seat of his pants, effectively. And you might think that's really, really, a really odd decision. One of, one of the things that always struck me is the reaction of Winston Churchill and Hitler to the news of Pearl Harbor, because Churchill goes, oh, great, that means we're going to win the war. And Hitler goes, oh, great, that means we're going to win the war. And one of them's right and the other one's wrong, you know, but the reaction is exactly the same. I mean, it's, it's incredible. To understand Hitler and the, the, the more general Nazi approach to this, you have to go back to the First World War. Um, their view that they lost the war because they were stabbed in the back and the problem was at home and the yeah. problem was domestic means by definition in their minds that the role of the Americans couldn't have been that important. So th this very uh, blithe kind of dismissal that they make of the United States. And again, when I was working on the Vichy book, I looked at a few. They're mostly Italian, but some German uh, sources advising Vichy France and telling them, look, it's going to take the Americans several years, just as it did in World War One. It's going to take them a really long time to get up to speed. Most of their stuff's going to go to the Pacific anyway. They're going to have to defend the, the Southern Hemisphere in the way they didn't have to do in World War One. They're not a threat. 
And I think this was much of the mentality that was going on among Axis military thinkers that, that the American problem in 1941, 42, 43 would be many times greater than it was in 1917, 1918. So even if the United States could do something, by the time they get involved, it's just going to be too late, just as it should have been in, in the First World War. So I think in some ways, whether you want to call that confirmation bias or availability bias or whatever cognitive bias you would call it, that's the way Axis military thinkers are thinking about the United States. And of course, they could not have been more wrong. Um, but, you know, I, it's again, for me as an historian of both world wars, I'm very interested in the way that memory of the first world war creates these kind of hangovers in senior leaders, because this isn't some, it's not like they're reaching back to the 17th century. You know, th these are the formative events of their lives. So to me, it's always interesting the way that impacts and shapes the way they think about strategy for the second world war. Well, absolutely. And, and as I get a little bit older, I, I mean, I kind of think, what's 20 years? I mean, it's absolutely nothing, right? So, <laughs> I mean, when you're 20, when you're 20, 20 years is your entire life. But when you're a little bit, you're kind of double that and some, you know, you kind of, you, you think, God, 20 years, this has gone by a flash. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, 2001 doesn't seem that long ago. And, and you know, it's, it still seems quite, quite modern. So you can see why, you know, 1918 would seem seem like nothing, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we just did the 20th anniversary commemorations of 9-11, and it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. And, you know, these, right. again, yeah, yeah. you know, f folks like Roosevelt and Churchill were in decision-making power in the First World War. I mean, they, they watched <laughs> yes. this unfold, right? So it, it's- As were most of the, uh, as were half of the French generals. Of course. And as were half of the German generals, Guderian, you know, all of these guys um, who remembered what they, what they had, even the, the more junior, younger people, Harry Truman, you know, was an artillery captain that that, that yeah, experience shaped him greatly. He got married on the day the Treaty of Versailles was signed. I mean, you know, th th these are guys that uh, th their whole lives have been affected by what happened in the First World War and after it. So, um, you know, the, this view that the Americans will come in late once again, they'll they'll screw it up again. They'll be you know, they'll they'll, they'll expose themselves again strategically. I think this idea in the German mindset lasts all the way through Overlord. And I don't know that I can prove this, but I think one of the reasons the Germans respond so slowly to Overlord is that they've they've seen the Americans screw up in Italy. They've seen the Americans make mistakes at Anzio and Salerno. They're going to make mistakes again. And by the time they figure out that the Americans kind of know what they're doing, it's too late to adjust that that mentality. But to get back to December 41, I guess you could argue there's no real reason for a German senior leader to be all that worried about what the United States will do in the immediate future. And it's not until, of well, course, almost but, a year before they do. But but it's also, I mean, Hitler thinks that because Japan's made this attack on the United States, the United States focus is going to be solely on Japan. I mean, why would you why would you go and help Britain now that you've got Japan to sort out? I mean, I think that's his, his, his main mentality, isn't it? And that's just a kind of just a total misreading of the situation, although as it turns out, I mean, it's not it's not cut and dried, and there's no question that that when the British chiefs of staff set sail across the Atlantic um, for the Arcadia Conference, which is very hastily kind of convened, they're doing so with quite a lot of butterflies in their tummies. I mean, you know, it is absolutely not a foregone conclusion that that all those earlier ABC One talks and Atlantic charters and discussions that you know. Uh, um, it, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, are going to have uh, back in August, who have going to made any difference whatsoever? I mean, you know, that could all be completely teared up, torn up. 
and of course, you you brought up the other piece of this equation, which is the Germans are in retreat from Moscow. Maybe if you declare war in the United States and Japan declares war in the Soviet Union, you have a chance to turn the tide. You know, you 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 can you can right. lock all these pieces together, um, even if it's only a symbolic. Only if Japan sort of threatens to come into Siberia, that might right. be just enough to let you catch your breath and get your momentum and and, and turn that around. So right. it, it's it's you know it, it clearly was the wrong decision. Um, but it's one that you can sort of understand how it ends up getting made and how the German generals uh, end up, if not loving the idea, at least embracing it um, sure. or, you know, acquiescing to it. Um, you know, I, there's I think the German generals were really good at the end of the war of saying, look, we had this all figured out. Hitler just did these stupid things. But, you know, it, it does come out of the blue, but there's a certain way yeah, yeah. in which strategically it makes sense in the wider perspective that the war has become. And do you think that that the 11th of December does that change things for the for the American chief of staff? I mean, does is that a is that a game changer or is it or were they already kind of veering the way they were already thinking? Yeah, I'm not sure that it changes quite too much. I think they always knew it was a possibility. Something was going to happen. You know, if if another Reuben James or some ship like that gets sunk post post Pearl Harbor, it's a different context than pre Pearl Harbor. Um, the United States was going to get involved in the European war in some way. Um, right. So the, the the now again what the the comment Murphy made to Vagon that that now everything is clarified. Now we don't have to play any games anymore. We don't have right. to do this. Are we in? Are we out? Are we neutral? Are we not neutral? Do we react mm-hmm. to the Reuben James? Do we not react to the Reuben James? Now right. the gloves are off. Now we can just say, okay, this is the way the world is. Here's the enemy. Here's who we are. Let's go. Yeah. Let's figure this out. And then the, the, the British turn up and, and, and how does Arcadia go? I mean, you know, it, these are these are new relationships, aren't they? I mean, they've, they've tested the water a little bit back in August at uh, Argenta and, you know, at the Atlantic meeting. But, you know, they're all new to it, aren't they? And let's not fix it. Uh, and let's not forget the fact that although they're called the allies, they are actually coalition partners. They're never formal allies. Correct. And they have some strategic issues on which they absolutely do not see eye to eye. Um, you know, that there's one moment when Churchill first comes into the White House and, and Roosevelt has a, a rug that that Haile Selassie had given him. And he, he specifically has that put into the what becomes the Oval Office as a reminder to Churchill of the evils of imperialism. So, you know, there are <laughs> ways in which they don't agree. Um, I, I, you know, I really think this is the this is the moment where Winston Churchill is at his absolute best. He brings his wit, his charm. Uh, There's a number of wonderful quotations that come out of this. You know, Churchill is trying to get from the Americans what he can get right at the outset by charming them. It doesn't work on everybody. It does not work on Eleanor Roosevelt in the least. It doesn't work on George Marshall. But this is the moment when the American people can associate the British war cause with Churchill, with his pugnacity, with his wit, um, with his determination to win this. So a lot of this is just, as you said, it's it's feeling out um, as John Dill said, uh, this was our honeymoon. We knew the marriage was going to be rocky, but the honeymoon went fine. So uh, it, it, it is a moment when they're just trying to make sure that there's enough agreement to build a coalition strategy. And they do agree to do Germany first. 
They do. They do. So I think, again, this is partly tyranny of distance. Um, no one thinks they'll be able to, the Japanese will be able to pull off a second Pearl Harbor. Uh, so there is a little bit of tyranny of distance. The Atlantic is closer. The threat to the Soviet Union and, and to England is closer uh, in the European theater. So you're going to have to figure out what to do in that theater first. Uh, there's also a kind of sense that the Pacific, the United States is not going to fight a coalition in quite the same way that it will in the Atlantic. So because those imperial issues are so a big deal uh the united states can, think, is that really what it's is that what it's about i mean you know because 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 i think i i think americans uh underestimate the role they play in southeast asia i mean you know what is it four hundred thousand, four hundred thousand american troops in in southeast asia you know for, I, either working for stillwell or, or primarily working on the hump you know this this uh supplying the the um chiang kai-shek and the and the chinese nationalists that's a big number of troops. It's 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 more than it's more than there are ever of British troops. It's not, in, not you can't say the same for Indian troops, obviously, but it is more than there are of British troops over there. And and yet, you know, your average American punter, I don't think I'm I'm kind of dissing him in any way, probably doesn't know that or, or realize that. You know, for, for 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 Americans, you know, the war against Japan is a war in the Pacific, but it but it isn't. And and yet, there is always this feeling that the Brits aren't really wanted, you know, don't get involved in our island scraps, you know, when it comes to Japan right at the end of the war, you know, we don't want the Brits involved at all, you know, we'll take this one. Um, is that because of MacArthur and just history or or, or, or is it really because of British imperialism? I, you know, I don't know. Well, I think it goes back to the open door in China and it goes back to the United States wanting to make sure it can get inside the imperial preference system. All things that had been an issue from the First World War and now are coming right. back in the second. So Roosevelt had a particular personal dislike of uh, Asian imperialism, European imperialism in Asia. And as you know, at Arcadia, he insists that India signed the UN declaration, United with the lowercase United Nations declaration uh, as an independent entity, which was something Churchill did not want to see happen. So there, there is a sense that the United States, uh, really what I think Roosevelt was trying to do is put more muscle behind some of the principles Woodrow Wilson had used in 1918 and 1919. And one of right. those principles is the self-determination of peoples in Asia. Now, yeah. it doesn't work out the way that Roosevelt envisioned in the early 1940s. Uh, but there is a sense that in the post-war world, we want India, Indochina, Japan, if it's rebuilt, we want those to be open markets and China too. Yep. We, we want the American firms, American corporations to trade on equal terms. That's something that Roosevelt's talking about from the very beginning. I'm not sure it's easy to convey that to the American people as a war aim. The defeat right. of Japan is a lot easier to convey, but it's yeah, certainly yeah. there as a governmental aim. And Truman extends that, at least for part of, uh, of the post-war period as well, that open markets which is really what the Americans mean when they're talking about the end of imperialism um, is going to be an American stated aim. But, but how does FDR square the Philippines then? Yeah. The, so the United States had agreed, as you know, before the war that the Philippines would gain its independence after the war. So the, the easy rhetorical way to square it is that we're going to hold to that commitment. We're going to get the Japanese out of the Philippines, but then we're not going to stay. We're going to turn it back over to, to a Philippine government. And then the difference with India is that although everyone knows that that's going to happen, it hasn't actually been stated when. Correct. And there are people like Churchill who are kind of saying, I'm going to, try, and even Clement Attlee later, who are saying, we're not sure that we want it to end, that that we, we think that India is best right. as part of the British Empire in some way. Um, I don't think that India was as big a concern 
in practical purposes for as for FDR as Southeast Asia was. Um, he right. he had a he had a particular uh, loathing for the way that France had governed Indochina, the way the British had governed Burma. Um, so the, those those were part of it. I also think. You know, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Delanos were some of the original traders into China in the in the 18th and 19th century. So making sure that the United States wouldn't have access to the Chinese markets was a was an enormous concern. How <laughs> interesting. I, yeah, I never knew that. That's fantastic. Well, that just goes to show how much one learns on doing doing. We have ways of making you talk, Mike. Um but but the Arcadia talks they, they they go pretty well, don't they? I mean, you know, there's not. I, I know you're talking about this honeymoon period, but despite that, you know, even though it is the honeymoon period, there's an awful lot at stake. So you know, they will want to get on, but equally, you know, because there's so much at stake, no one, n- neither side is going to be a pushover either. I mean, no, absolutely not. I you know, I keep thinking of Bismarck's great comment that. The supreme geopolitical fact of the modern age is that Americans speak English. So what what you have here are, you know, two groups that don't agree on some of their grand strategic uh, ideas, but they come to realize that they do agree on an awful lot. And the fundamental thing they do agree on is that the defeat of Germany is paramount. The defeat of Japan is paramount. And at least for the time being, keeping the Soviet Union alive and fighting is paramount. So if you can agree on those three principles, there's room to work out the rest. Um, and, and right. it, that's not to say that they agree on everything, but but you understand the grand strategy of what you're aiming for. And you're both committed to fighting a total war to the point of unconditional surrender, though I know that hadn't been decided yet. Uh, that's not decided until Casablanca. Um, but if you can agree but, on But that, it is a sort of implicit understanding, isn't it, even at that stage? Absolutely. And, and one of the things the British want to see is that the Americans are committed to a total reconversion of their economy, which the Americans had not done in World War One. They were moving towards it, but did not get there. So this is another criticism that you read in Vichy and Italian uh, assessments of the United States, that since the U.S. has an economy that is basically built for the creature comforts of consumers, it, it's never going to convert fully to military to, to military operations. And what the British want to see is that the Americans are committed to doing just that. And they come away from Arcadia believing that that's exactly what the Americans are going to do. Yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the mood, I mean, generally the mood, you were saying that to Churchill was his most charming best and everything, but I mean, is there a kind of sort of forced conviviality and, and kind of willingness to for everyone to get on? Or, or, or do you think that there's genuine kind of sort of sense of friendship and general a, a genuine sense of kind of team building that, okay, right, we're on the same side here. We're, we're, we're in this together. You know, when I, when I was reading about Arcadia to get ready for our talk, it, it struck me that it was a little bit like a department meeting in an academic department. Um, you may or may not like the people around the, the table, but they're not going anywhere. And you're going to have to figure out a way to get along with them because there are things that your department has in common. And some of them you may want to, to pull aside and have a drink with because you find them really interesting. And some of them you're going to go to the other end of the room. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was always trying to keep Franklin Roosevelt at the other end of the room when, when it was possible, because she thought that, that Churchill's charm was going to lead FDR to make choices that were more in Britain's interest than they were in American interests. Um, the military guys, you know, they, they, they strike me as people who are trying to be as professional as they can. Marshall did not much like the, the cocktail party chit chat kind of thing. He wanted to get down to business and let's make decisions and let's figure out what we're doing. I think some of the British generals felt the same way. Um, 
But, you know, I, I don't think it's forced conviviality. I think it's it's looking around the room and saying, look, for the foreseeable future, these are the people right. we're going to have to work with. It, it will behoove us to get to know their strengths, their weaknesses, um, what they do, how they react. Uh, it's going to be worth getting to know them. And, and just lastly, I mean, you know, is there much debate? I mean, it, is it a hard sell, a hard agreement to get to kind of the Germany first strategy? I don't think so. I mean, King... Because because there are those practical factors, aren't there? You know, keeping Russia in as much as anything. I mean, that then has a knock-on effect to, to Japan, doesn't it? Right. There's also the sense that the United States will be able to conduct, really will be able to fight two wars. It's not a question of... Um, you know, Europe in 42, then Asia 43 or something like that. The United no. States is enough. They're, they're going to they fight the Battle of the Coral Sea, of course. Um, yep. You know, so the, there, there is the sense that we don't have to make an either either choice. What we need to do, and this is the key to the issue, we need to figure out where this sea lift is going to go. And as you know, this is an issue for the rest of the war. Where are these transport ships going to go? Because, you know, you, you, you can fly an airplane from the Pacific to the Atlantic uh, in a couple of days. That, that sea lift capability, once it goes to one theater, that's where it is. Uh, and it's probably not going to move very much. Um, so, and if it does move, it's going to take a long time. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the key things that they're starting to realize. Uh, we need to make some strategic decisions. And most importantly, we need to create a structure that is bureaucratic enough to take into account all of what we would today call the stakeholders, but flat enough that decisions can still be made. And that's really what George Marshall wants. He wants to, to create this combined chiefs of staff that then goes directly to Churchill and Roosevelt for quick decisions. He doesn't want a kind of multi-layered bureaucracy where everything has to go up and then it has to come back down. And that's the main thing that he gets out of Arcadia. Uh, yeah, and, and and the truth is also that, that the United States Navy is able to dominate in, in, you know, it's predominantly used in the Pacific. I mean, it is used in the in the in the Western, you know, the European theater, but much, much, to a much lesser extent. You know, we, even using USS Wasp a couple of times in the Mediterranean, that that is an exception. That is, you know, it's 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 deployed there for a little bit, and then it's kind of back out to the Pacific, and and it's absolutely an exception. Um, and you know, that's why when it comes to kind of you know D-Day, the the main lift in terms of warships is is the Royal Navy rather than the U.S. Navy. And, and that's because the U.S. Navy is doing the main lift in the Pacific, and and that's that's fair enough. But, but because the majority of the U.S. Navy is in the Pacific, that does mean it can fight two, you know, two fronts. Doesn't Absolutely. It? The, the key, of course, is that the the, the Pacific is going to be an aircraft carrier war. You can do right. the, you know, Overlord is the perfect example. You can do most of that with land based aviation, the air support you that's do, required for for Overlord. Absolutely. You, in the, in the Pacific Coral Sea, the battle I just mentioned is fought entirely with 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 aircraft carriers. So, uh, once you start to develop those ideas and once those kind of doctrines come into play, then you can sort of begin to see where the the shared responsibilities are going to be and what and, and sheer practicality dictates where you deploy your your resources. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's also at Arcadia. I think it's because you know they're they're getting to know one another that. You know, there's still national sensitivities. There's still personal hurt feelings. There's still ego. All of that still plays in. But there is a way in which they can see, look, if we continue to do this, if we continue to bicker over where an individual ship is going, we're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, it's that comment Churchill makes. So, you know, we'll take half as long if we manage it well, you know, or the, the com whatever right. comment uh, he makes that, you know, we have to think this through. There's going to be moments when Britain has to take the lead and there's going to have to be moments when the United States takes the lead. What, what really comes out of Arcadia, in my mind, 
and it's so obvious that we don't think about it, it's going to be the opposite of the way that the Germans in both world wars do their alliance relationships, (laughs) where we're just going to call the shots and we're just going to make decisions, regardless of how many troops Romania contributes or Italy contributes. It's going to be a German war and you're going to fall behind us. That's not the way the U.S. British war is going to be, even though there will be moments when British voices predominate and moments when American voices dominate. Nevertheless, this is going to be, however difficult a cooperation, it's going to be a cooperation. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I think it's a, the, the the pragmatism, the kind of that that sort of. I always think, think isn't it fortunate that that the chiefs of staff on both sides, and particularly the um, prime minister and president, their geopolitical understanding was pretty darn good. I mean, you know, they, they they could see big picture. They had that kind of innate understanding in a way that so many of the Axis commanders didn't. I mean, you, you would never say that Mussolini's got great geopolitical understanding, would you? No. And I think part of that comes from the global responsibilities that Britain and, and the United States had. But I think right. also part of it comes from the personal memories that Roosevelt and Churchill, both in the seat of power in 1919, witnessed the way in which a military victory was thrown away by a very bad understanding of what the post-war world was going to look like and and flawed assumptions of what that was going to be. So this is, again, this is why Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor is not afraid that Churchill is going to talk Roosevelt into invading someplace. What she's afraid of is that Churchill is going to dominate FDR's understanding of what that post-war world ought to look like. So already they're already beginning to think about exactly what a grand strategist should do, not just how do we win the war, but how is winning the war setting up the shaping of a post-war world you want to have? Whereas in World War One, you you had this victory on the battlefield, and then it's almost a completely separate process to figure out what the post-war world is going to look like. You know, you're already starting with four freedoms, Atlantic Charter. You're already starting with these kind of basic conceptual ideas of how you want this thing to look, which makes it a little different from Wilson's 14 points, which are not only not embraced, they're actively resisted by his own allies. You know, Clemenceau saying God himself was content to give us just yeah. 10. You know, here what Roosevelt's trying to do is create that basis from the very beginning. Yeah, what, what what amazing days they were. I mean, just incredible. I mean, what would you do to be a fly on the wall at some of these discussions and debates and kind of just have these these sort of eyes on these sort of great moments in history? I mean, I, I really do think that, that December 1941 is just one of the most momentous months, not just of the Second World War, but literally ever in world history. You think what's going on. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? And your point about being a fly on the wall, you know, a lot of these conversations were not recorded. We don't have good primary evidence. We have Harry no. Hopkins's personal notes and, yes. you know, a few folks who kept letters and diaries and things. But for the most part, we we, we don't have that. Um, and, you know, the, the guy who I think is one of the best diary writers of the whole war, Alan Brook, isn't there. So, um, you know, the, the, the guy you would want to be sitting there writing things down is, is back in, in the UK. Um, so, you know, you really... You know, we talk about this all the time, but we historians can only work with the materials that we have. If someone didn't record a conversation, we won't know about it. So wouldn't it have been great to have somebody back there recording for posterity what what Churchill and Roosevelt are talking about over martinis and just to just to hear the way they're conceptualizing this war? Are they afraid? Are they optimistic? Uh, Would have been just a, a wonderful thing. But of course, we don't have that. (laughs) <laughs> we don't but um yeah well thanks mike i mean that's just been so fascinating it really has um that's all we got time for on this episode but um do tune in for the next one because this is december 41 week cheerio cheerio
Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goal Hanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with... Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the founding fathers, the men who made America. We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America? What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We we know the faces from the banknotes. But they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability lies the nuance and complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of their beliefs, their experiences. These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally fundamental to what American politics looks like today. It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men. Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.